Welcome to the podcast of Grace Community Bible Church. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged, and inspired by this message. For other sermons or more information, visit us at gracebiblechurch.org.au. This morning we come to a text where we're reminded again of man's deep-seated problem, that is sin. We've seen this again and again in the first few chapters of Genesis, of how when sin came into the world, it infected all of humanity such that everyone after Adam and Eve, without exception, is born in sin. It is a deep-rooted problem in every human being. In fact, another way of talking about this sin problem is pride, as the Bible calls it in other places. Or you could even say that it is the love of self, living for the self, living for the glory of self rather than the glory of God. It is a love of self that humanity has which leads to a kind of self-preservation. Any means by which man can be secure and any way in which man can exalt himself, that's what this love of self leads to. Where the self says, I want to be superior, I want to be known, I want to be seen as great in front of everyone. And yet we also know, as we've looked at the first few chapters of Genesis, that God created man not so that man could live for his own glory. No, God created man so that man would live for God's glory and God's glory alone. And so what this passage will remind us is of this very fact. Man has a huge, deep-seated problem And yet, if man lives for his glory, trying to reject God, God will thwart man's plans. Man's plans will not prosper. God will still achieve his purposes, and he will still be glorified. And we have much to learn from this passage as we look at this passage that we would be reminded of how the world is around us how just normal everyday human beings are and why it is they act the way they are. And then beyond that, we have much to learn about how we are to live as God's children who've been transformed by the blood of Jesus. How we are to live as a church for God's glory and God's glory alone. I've titled this morning's message as God's goodness at Babel. And by way of outline, the first four verses, we'll look at the sinful ascension of man. And in, the, in verses five through nine, we'll look at God's gracious condescension. So firstly, the sinful ascension of man in verses one through four. Really, the first two verses, it just serves as a background to the events of the Tower of Babel. This is what verse 1 says. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. 
Now, those of you who have been with us, as we've been going through Genesis, might be thinking, hey, what's going on here? I mean, didn't we learn a couple of weeks ago from Genesis 10, the table of nations, where we saw how the descendants of the three sons of Noah were divided. They were dispersed according to their different languages, uh, according to their lands. But now in Genesis 11 verse 1, it says, the whole earth had one language. Now this is typical in the book of Genesis where there is something mentioned very broadly and then there's a narrowing and an explaining of, and an explanation is then given. If you think of Genesis 1.1 to Genesis 2.3, it was the account of the uh, creation of the entire universe from days 1 through 7. And then from Genesis 2.4 onwards, if you remember, uh, we went back and the focus was on day six to explain how the man and the woman were created and what became of the man and woman that was created. Then in Genesis 5, we saw there was a genealogy of the sons of Adam through the line of Seth, all the way down to Noah and his three sons. And then in Genesis 6, we went back. We didn't start off then with Noah's sons. We went back to Noah, and the focus was on Noah as the main figure during the time of the flood. So similarly, in Genesis 10, there was a mention of the various nations divided and dispersed according to their languages and lands. And now Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9, will now go back and explain to us how and why these different nations with different languages came about and how they were dispersed in the various lands. How from this one family, these various nations came about. So let's go back to Genesis 11.1 1, where it says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Meaning that everyone on earth spoke the one language, no different dialects. They used the same vocabulary. Now you and I know that we can speak the same language. Take English for example. But we can speak a different vocabulary. You know, I remember I moved to Australia in uh, 2006 for work. And I remember this was my uh, first week at work. And um, in the hospitals, they, uh, you know, everyone gets a pager. And so this is my first day or second day or something like that. And the nurse sends me a page saying, oh, the patient has a certain issue. Um, Here's what it is on the page, and then at the end of it, it said TAR with an extension number. Now, I didn't know all the Aussie lingo at that time, so, so I called the extension number, and then I say, uh, hi, can I speak to TAR, please? And, and you could hear the, the, the same kind of response from the nurse, and where she said, uh, you're new around here, aren't you? You haven't been in Australia for long, have you? It's like, yeah, no, how do you know? 
And then she went on to explain how ta is just a way of saying thank you. So yes, it was English, but it was different because it was, it's not the same words. Now, when you think of other cultures, each culture has a different way of doing things. For example, in the Middle East, the, you know, even the men greet each other, uh, even kiss each other on the cheeks as a way of greeting one another. Now, in this culture we, that we live in, if men did that to each other, it would be highly inappropriate. So even between cultures, there can be huge differences. But the verse here says that the whole world speaks one language and use the same words, meaning that there were no barriers with regards to communication. There was no misunderstanding because of some cultural differences. No, there's a great unity here with the whole world. And then verse 2 goes on to say, As people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. So this one united group of people, they, they pack up their bags and they start migrating and start going east. Now I know in the ESV it translates where it says they're moving from the east, but the NASB has a better translation where it says uh, they journeyed eastward. So not moving from the east, but they're moving toward the east. They're journeying eastward. And really, when you look at the map during this time, it's the region of Mesopotamia. Remember, after the flood, Noah's ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. That's the northern part of Mesopotamia. So now that family has grown large, it's become a huge nation of united people, and these people are now migrating south and east of Mesopotamia to the plains of Shinar. And these plains of Shinar, they're found between the Tigris and Euphrates River. It's a fertile land, a place uh, very excellent to cultivate. And they move eastward, therefore, from the mountains, going south and then moving eastward to these fertile plains and settling here. Now this eastward movement, I've talked about this before even in the earlier chapters, but this eastward movement, particularly in the book of Genesis, it is important because aside from the physical direction, moving eastward in the book of Genesis is the direction of those who are moving away from God, those who are moving away from God's blessing. If you remember in Genesis 3.24, God drove out the man. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. In Genesis 4.16, where Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden, where he was going away from the Lord. Then in Genesis 13.11, we will see where Lord Lot chooses for himself the Jordan Valley and he journeys eastward, it says. 
So where, again, he's moving away from the Lord and away from the blessing and the goodness of God. So in Genesis 11:2 as well, when it says the people are journeying eastward, aside from the physical direction, it is showing that these people are moving away from God. And remember, this is in the land of Shinar. The land of Shinar, why is that important? Because that's the kingdom of Nimrod. We saw that in Genesis 10. And Nimrod's first place that he founded, the first city that he founded was what? Babel. So this is Nimrod's kingdom. He's establishing his kingdom. He's leading the people. The strong, mighty hunter of people who is in absolute rebellion against God and driving people away from God. But what you see here is the human race is united together in, by a common language. They're living together in one geographical area. So there's great unity, but at the same time, they're moving away from God. Now the scene unfolds. Verse 3. It says, And they said to one another, Come, Let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Now the language is very emphatic. In fact, in the original, there's a lot of repetition. It's let us brick bricks and burn for burning. There's a repetition of terms. See, these people, they didn't come down from the the mountain ranges all the way down to the valley to have a restful life and take it easy. No, there's determination here. There's resolve here. There's an excitement to make these bricks. You can almost hear them beating their chests, pumping themselves up. And now some details are given about the building materials used. It says, and they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Now, why is this significant? Well, remember, they've, they've come to the plain of China. It's a very fertile land. So this is an area where you wouldn't find that many stones, but it would have been full of clay and just fertile kind of land. And so what happens? Because there are no stones, mankind improvises. You see, they they may have seen the effect of the sun on the wet mud and clay that when the heat of the sun keeps keeps on uh, beating the, 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 the clay and the fertile land, that it tends to harden. So what do they do? They decide to do the same. They, they get the clay, get it all together and all the mud together. They burn it in a fire pit so that the heat would then harden the bricks so that it becomes hard like stone. And then it says they use bitumen for mortar. Now bitumen, it it served as a good adhesive where these bricks can be held together. But you know, bitumen is also a waterproofing agent. 
It's the same thing that is mentioned in Exodus 2 when Moses is placed in that basket of reeds and it's smeared with bitumen. Why is it smeared with bitumen? For waterproofing. Now you say, why would they want to waterproof this place? What has just happened just before or just some years before? A global flood. So man is now making a permanent structure, even trying to get it waterproofed just in case there would be a flood. Oh, this is so clever of man. Extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, his creativity, his skill for inventing things. And, and, and why is man like this? We've seen this even as we've looked at the first few chapters because man is made in the image of God. And therefore, just like his creator God, man is able to reflect and therefore in his creative skills and inventive skills and do and make all these things. I mean, even in our day and age, despite the godlessness in our society, despite the godlessness in our world, I mean, there's been so many advances, right? I mean, you think of things like harnessing the power of the sun. I mean, the sun is so far away, and to harness the power of the sun and to get energy from it, to get solar energy. Advancements in communication where we can communicate and see and hear people far away that are so far away on the other side of the earth. Even events that take place just at the swipe of a finger, we get to know instantly. So there's technological advances, advances in travel, going deeper into the sea, going further out into space, traveling at the speed of light, advances in science, advances in medicine. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on, and this is all because man is made in the image of God. That's why he's so creative and inventive. And that's exactly what you see here in Genesis 11, where they build these bricks. Man's ingenuity and creativity because he is made in the image of God. But what are they going to use these bricks for? Look at verse 4. It says, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. See, these people used to dwell in tents before. Remember Noah? At least he used to dwell in tents. That's how they had started. They used to have a temporary residence. And now they're building bricks where stones are not available. And now they've resolved to do something greater and grander, uh, more permanent with these bricks, to build a city that is protected with a tower in the middle that reaches the heavens. Now you say, that, that's impressive for a bunch of tent dwellers. And notice it specifically says that they want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now think with me for a moment. Why build it up to the heavens? Well, we saw them waterproofing the tower. 
or waterproofing the, the bricks as they're bringing it together. And remember, when the flood came, it reached up to the mountaintops. Now they're building way higher so that if God were to send another flood, they would be able to escape even that flood because this is now going way above and beyond even the mountains. It's going to reach into the heavens. So their plan is to build higher into the heavens, which is really the abode of God, right? So it's like saying, we're just like God. There is nothing that can stop us. That there's nothing he can do to us because we ourselves are going to reach up to the heavens. So he can't flood the heavens. We're right there where he's at. So it's really going up to where God is so that they can be seen as gods themselves. Look, we are supreme. We're just like God. And it's really an effort to get rid of God ultimately from their lives. And their rebellion and their defiance against God becomes even more clear in the second half of verse 4. Where it says, Let us make a name for ourselves. lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. Remember, what was God's purpose for mankind? That man would image God to the rest of the world. But here man's purpose is to build a tower to make a name for themselves. And, and remember, even this concept of naming, we've looked at this before. To name someone is to show your authority over that person. And God is the one who first named Adam, showing his authority over man and showing his rule over man. Then God gave man the authority to name the animals showing man's authority over the animal kingdom. So that when man did that, man would live on this earth and reflect the very authority of God as God's representative. But what does man want to do here? He wants to make a name for himself. No, they don't want to live according to the purposes that God had created them for. They don't want to live under the rule of God and obey Him. In fact, they want to live independent of God and they want to declare themselves to be their own Lord and God and they want their own fame, their own significance, their own glory, their own name. And in a sense, we got a glimpse of this even in the earlier chapters, right? With Cain, remember in Genesis 4? where Cain went out from the presence of the Lord after killing his brother. And what does he do? He goes and builds a city and then names that city after his son. Why? Because it was an act of defiance. Because he built that city where he was saying, this is my world. 
and I get to name it, and I have authority over this world, not God, I'm not going to live under God's rule. That's the same thing that is taking place here, except on a much larger scale. It's not just one person, it's the entire human race. In rebellion against God, and they're united in this where they want to be their own authority and they want their own significance and name apart from God. In fact, it becomes very clear that this is total defiance if you look at the last part of verse 4 where it says, let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So they want to be independent from God. They want to be their own God, but they're also a little bit fearful because they think if they scatter, things might not go well for them. Maybe they're thinking previously, before the flood, mankind wasn't united in their rebellion, so God was able to easily destroy them. So they're saying, no, we're not going to scatter. We're going to stand united in one place. But what is God's plan for mankind? What did God tell Adam and Eve? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. After the flood, Noah comes out of the ark. What does God tell Noah and his family? The same thing. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God says, go spread out and fill the earth with my glory. And now the human race says, no, we will settle here. We will not disperse. We will not fill the earth. We will congregate in one place in our rebellion. And they're thinking, lest we be scattered, they're possibly thinking, maybe if we do this, we can thwart God's plans. There's maybe a possibility we can actually do this together. And what we see here is the readiness of mankind to rebel against God. This deep-rooted problem in all of humanity. We all have it where we want it our way. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. And especially God. What man is saying here is, God... We don't want your rule. We don't want your authority over our lives. We will rule our lives. We know what is best for us. We don't want anything to do with you. And really, man is trying to protect himself, find his security and his significance apart from God. But I want you to just think about this for a second. 
I mean, isn't it ironic? I mean, God has made man with so much significance. Man is not like animals. Man is stamped with the image of God, where God has specially given man the privilege of reflecting God's image and glorifying God in a way no other creature can. And by doing this, man will have the greatest satisfaction and the greatest significance. You say, why? Because this is the purpose for which God has made mankind, to image God and glorify him. So it's like how I've said before, you know, you have a manufacturer who's created a product and you use that product according to its purpose, things will go well. This God has created us and this is what God has created us for. And so when we live this way for his glory, we will have great satisfaction and we will, have, we will find our significance in this. But because of sin, man continues to reject God and his rule and tries to find his significance and his security in himself. And, and we see it everywhere in the world around us too, with everyone, our society, even individuals. Our society that would say, it, say that without Oh, we don't need God, but we can advance our societies to the highest level. No, in fact, if you bring God into the picture, that will only hinder us. We are more than sufficient without God, the world would say. And so now you have organizations like the United Nations openly want to have nothing to do with God a humanistic, secular thinking where they think they can bring about world peace and solve the poverty problem and the disease problem and end wars and whatever else because they somehow think they know what is best for the nations. We've had individual uh, men throughout world history, strong men like Stalin and Hitler and Pol Pot, People who tried to bring the world together, to, to unite the world under their rule, thinking they knew what was best for the society. They knew what was best for mankind. Even now, in this very country and even in other nations, people living in open rebellion against God, thinking they know what is best about man and how to advance society. And that is by rejecting God, by rejecting his word, and redefining what is good and wrong, what is right and wrong. And where more rampant we're seeing, there's a redefinition of what marriage is, a redefinition of what family is, a redefinition of what sexuality is, and, and, and the list keeps going on. And ultimately, it's the same thing, saying, God, we don't want you. We don't want your authority. We don't want your word. It is our word that is most important. It's really a love of self again, isn't it? Living for the self and not for the glory of God. And all these efforts are it's so foolish and futile. 
But that's exactly what happens when man rejects God and his word. And the human self is regarded as the high authority. What we see here in these first four verses is that man, if he's left to himself in his sin, will not seek after God. Man will not seek after God's glory, but will only seek after his own glory because man has got a deep-seated problem. And this is another passage that testifies to that fact. Now, the account of the human race stopped here with man having the final word and authority man would be in a lot of trouble. If humanity was left in this state without God ever intervening, man would have no hope and no future. And here we come to our second point, God's gracious condescension. Verses 5 through 9. Verse 5 reads, And the, and the Lord came down to the city and the tower which the children of man had built. So now we're moving from the rebellion of mankind to, in the first four verses, to God's sovereign intention or intervention to bring about his purposes. It says the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now we know from the Bible that God is present everywhere and he knows all things. So God knows exactly what's going on here in Babel. So the language of the Lord coming down to see is really not because God has no idea what's going on. No, it's more God is using human language to communicate to us God's actions. It's really God mocking mankind. It's as if God is saying, okay man, you're trying to usurp me and defy me and make a name for yourself by building this grand tower all the way up to the heavens where I am. Where is it? I mean, where is it? See, the point of this is that the, the supposed tower that's reaching all the way up to the heavens is nowhere to be seen as far as God is concerned. It's as if God is saying, oh, I've got to come down from my lofty position and come and see this thing. Oh, that little speck there, that little anthill there, that's your great thing. That's what God is doing. It's really emphasizing the, the puniness of mankind against the greatness of God. Isaiah 40 verse 22 says that God sits about the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers to him. And, and even to emphasize the smallness of man further, verse 5 adds the, 
the, the city and tower which the children of man had built. The children of man, meaning the children of Adam, creatures made by God, creatures made from the dust of the ground. Just like their father Adam who rebelled against God and wanted to be like God, now the children of Adam or the children of man have united and come together to rebel against God and reach up to God to take his place. But God has to come down from his lofty position because man will never reach up to God. And so after God comes down, he evaluates the situation. Look at verse 6. It says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Now, this is not God somehow being afraid, saying, oh, if, if mankind keeps going on like this and they reach their full, full potential, perhaps they will come up to the heavens. Perhaps they'll become like me. No, God is not threatened by mankind. That somehow his sovereign rule will be overthrown. No, he is God. And man is but a puny creature. And even if all of mankind is together against God, it is no threat for God because he is God, the sovereign one. God's concern here is really the sin of man. Remember, even after the flood, God said in Genesis 8 verse 21 that the intention of the heart of man is evil from his youth that nothing had changed for man. And so God is saying, if this is what man has started to do after the flood, then no sin would be impossible for man. A unified world in sin would only lead to greater acts of evil and sin. And that would be an absolute disaster. It would lead to the ruin of all mankind and this is not God's plan for mankind. And so God intervenes. Look at verses 7 through 9. It says, and God says, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. There its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. In the first four verses, man said, it was man's confident word, let us, let us make bricks. Let us make a city and a tower. Now in verse 7, God uses the same language. God says, let us, to show mankind that man would never have the last word. God alone 
would have the last word. And exactly what God said and planned comes to pass. This is God's judgment against man for their rebellion against God. And God now begins to undo all of man's plans. You see, the people thought they would be clever, that they are so clever and they'd be able to build this tower that would reach all the way up to the heavens to be like God and even displace God. But God, in his judgment, he creates languages so that now the people wouldn't be able to understand each other. And now they're unable to finish the building the tower. The project is left incomplete. The people thought that they would make a name for themselves, but instead of, instead of making the name of God great everywhere on earth. See, the very name Babel, it sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for confusion. In fact, in the English, we get the word babble from this very word. So Babel became known as the place where God confused man and halted man's plan. Instead of being known for its greatness and power, the Tower of Babel became a symbol of man's foolishness and nothingness before a mighty God. The people thought they would settle in one place in defiance against God and that nothing would be able to stop their plans because they're united in their sin and rebellion against God. But God confused them with different languages, caused division among them, causing them to scatter over the earth just like he had planned in the beginning. Mankind said, let us, thinking they can thwart God's plans and whatever they put their mind to will come to pass because they were united. But God also said, let us. And unlike mankind, whatever God says will always come to pass. And in this case, despite man's sin, man has to willingly or unwillingly do God's bidding, leave off the building project, and he's forced to scatter over all the earth. This is a reminder that when man rebels against God and does not live according to God's purposes, God will bring those efforts of man to nothing. It will not bear significance and it will come to nothing because God is never mocked. He will bring to pass whatever he has planned, even if the entire human race is against him. God's will, word alone will stand, and he will always have the last word, because he is the supreme ruler and sovereign one of this entire universe. So this was God's judgment against the sin of mankind. But this time, instead of wiping them out like in the flood, God divides the human race, the sinful human race that are unified into many different nations having different languages. 
And so you can say, Genesis being the book of origins, this is where the nations come about. This is where the different languages come about as a result of God's judgment against mankind at Babel. But I want you all to notice that even in God's judgment towards mankind here, God shows grace. See, God, by judging man and by dividing the one nation into many nations of differing languages, he was also bringing about a restraining of evil by bringing about the confusion of different languages, God is restraining mankind from understanding each other and keeping them from devising greater acts of evil. And because, of the, because the heart of man is still sinful to the core, each nation now will try to rule over the other nation but in doing so, you know what happens? Evil is also curbed. Because what's better than having one nation that is unified in rebellion and in sin is divided nations, even as they try to control each other, there is a restraining of evil. So the very existence of many nations is better than having one nation when man is sinful because they serve as a restraint of evil. You don't want one man ruling over the entire world united in their evil like Nimrod, like in the case of Babel. That's what Hitler tried to do. And it'll be the end of mankind. In fact, it'll be what Satan will try to accomplish in the end where you see all the nations gathering together against Jesus Christ. But God will overcome them all. So while God judged mankind for their sin and rebellion and confused man's language and scattered them, it was also an act of grace to restrain evil for God's own glory and for the good of mankind. And by scattering them over the earth, God's purpose for man to scatter and fill the earth is now being accomplished. By dividing them into different nations and scattering them over the earth, God's plan to bring about the salvation of man through Jesus Christ from every tribe and nation and tongue so that the whole earth would be filled with God's glory, that plan is now set in motion. And as we move through the pages of Scripture and come to the New Testament, we see the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, came into this world as God promised 2,000 years ago. That despite the sinfulness of man, God condescended down to earth to save rebellious men and women like you and me. 
God came down in the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man who died in our place and suffered the judgment for our sins on the cross of Calvary. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead, providing the forgiveness for our sins and freedom from the bondage of sin. But why did God do this? Why did Jesus accomplish this? So that by God's grace, we can be transformed from the inside out and be able to live for God's glory. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I wonder if there's anyone sitting here this morning that does not know Jesus, that does not understand the gospel, that does not live to make Jesus known. Friend, I'd love to talk to you after this sermon. Or you can speak to Donnie or one of the members of our church or perhaps whoever you came with if that person is a Christian. But please do not leave today without knowing who Jesus is and what it is that he has done. Now the question still remains. How and when is God going to gather those he has scattered and divided because of their sin and rebellion? Answer, Acts 2. From the passage that we read this morning in our Bible reading. You see, after Jesus returned back to heaven, the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples and they supernaturally spoke in tongues. Or in other words, they spoke in foreign languages. Why? so that the people from different tribes and tongues and nations could hear the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed in their own language. And in this way, the church, a new humanity, was inaugurated. And really, the the church is a, a picture of what God will accomplish in the end, of what heaven will be like, of people from every tribe and tongue and nation who are gathered together to glorify our dear Lord. So this gathering of the church, this is really anti-Babel, the very opposite of Babel. It's the complete reversal of what happened at Babel. See, this church that is gathered here, it is a picture of the power of the gospel to unite a people from different, tr- different nations and tongues, to not proclaim, not gathering together to proclaim the greatness of man, but gathering together to proclaim the greatness and glory of God. This is what this gathering represents. It's anti-Babel. And it points to the greatness and the glory and the power of our great God. But here's the thing. You and I, even as believers, we're not yet perfected. We're not sinless. So we can easily slip back and focus on ourselves and live for ourselves and have no concern for the glory of God. And yes, this can happen even in the church. 
What does this look like, you say? Well, one way in which this can look is when we have this kind of mindset where we say, oh, I don't have to be concerned about anybody around me. I don't have to be concerned about the spiritual welfare of others so long as I'm doing good. I don't need to care about others. Or when we have this mindset, I will do what I want to do and I don't care what anybody else says. You've offended me, so I'm going to do everything in my power to destroy you. No, we're not thinking about whether these things will build up the body or tear down the body. We're simply thinking about ourselves and our name. No, God wants us to live for his glory, and that includes seeking to do spiritual good to those around us, and even striving to maintain the unity amongst us, even in our differences. Why? Because it displays the power of the gospel and what Jesus has done in this group of people. If we say we are truly believers and this has happened in our life, then we should live like that. Another way in which we can be self-focused is when we're not concerned for the lost. When we're not concerned about making the glory of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ in our families, in our workplace, in our friendships, wherever else. But we're just thinking about ourselves and not concerned about making his name known. And another way in which we might be self-focused, and this might be for us more in the future if God allows our church to grow in numbers, when we're not sending missionaries from our midst into the nations, or perhaps we've gotten to such a size that we're not thinking now of planting other churches, but we're saying, no, we're gonna stand here, we're gonna be so self-focused and we're not concerned for the glory of God and to spread his faith. We are not to live for our glory, but for the glory of God shown in Jesus Christ. May we as a church live to truly know Jesus Christ and make him known to others. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful because you have given us the privilege that you have opened our eyes to yourself because in our sin, we would never seek you. We would never seek to want to joyfully want to glorify you and even understand that by glorifying you, it is also for our good. To do anything else would only lead to our ruin. We are so thankful for our Lord Jesus Christ and for what he's done. Father, we are so thankful for what you have done in and through us and what you're continuing to do even in our church. Help us to be mindful of this. Help us to live in a way that even through our differences to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ. Help us to live in a way, even in our individual lives where we're concerned for your glory and not just for our self-preservation, but we're thinking of others and even the lost. And we pray that through all this, you would get the glory. We thank you, Father, for the privilege that you've given us this way. 
We pray that these words would not go in one ear and go out the other, but would sink deep into our hearts and help us to ever live for your glory and your glory alone. And we pray all this in Jesus Christ's precious name. Amen.